Hey, welcome to the Arizona People's Report, recorded by the Stand Together Arizona Training and Advocacy Center at YWCA Southern Arizona in Tucson. I'm Mari Herreras, and together we're going to review the conversations taking place in our state with grassroots activists, leaders, organizers, community folks, and even our statewide politicians and candidates. We aim to rebuild community figure out democracy, and get back to the roots of comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. Check us out on Facebook at YWCA Stats. Hey, everyone. I'm talking today with uh, Todd Miller, um, who is a Tucson um, writer, journalist, father, um, what other monikers or titles are you taking on these days? That sounds good enough. <laughs> I don't want to take on too many more. <laughs> it could be a, like a hefty weight there. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, y- y'all know we're, we've been um, talking a bit about climate um, uh, in these different conversations that we're, we're having in the next leg of our podcasts. And, but I also thought it would be cool to have him come in and talk about his work and chat a bit about about climate. And Todd, I, re- I think I first met you or knew of you really, maybe it took a while for me to actually meet you uh, in person, but um, when um, you came out, I think with your first book or it was right before your first book and um, at the Tucson Weekly, we published uh, a story that you did about um, weirdness on the border really. It's I think if I can recall, it was like just these odd things that uh, Border Patrol folk do to in working with community and things like that. Uh, or, no, no, I think it was that um, that weird uh, meeting that occurs every year of uh, border, like, you know, guns and security things and stuff like that that usually has a bunch of Border Patrol people attend, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that was quite... Quite a few years ago, and you've got a lot. You've done some two books, two books now. Yeah, two books. Since, yeah. Since then, what brought you to border issues? I mean, what was the for you? What what brought you to those issues that made you decide that this was really going to be a big part of your life? Well, um, I guess there's there's a short a shorter version, a longer. I'll stick with a shorter version. <laughs> I um. <laughs> Lucky for you, right? <laughs> um, but I, in the late 1990s, I, I lived in um, Mexico for a year. And when I was living there, um, I, uh, you know, I learned a lot. I learned a considerable amount about Mexican, you know, culture, history, um, language, Spanish. I learned Spanish or a lot of Spanish at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the biggest things I learned um, was... Uh, was to view my own country from outside of its borders, and you know, via you know my physical distance from the country and not being you know being outside of it, but also talking to people and uh, about their experiences and talking to people about their experiences going north. And this was mm-hmm. late 1990s, um, so yeah, um, and uh, and and so you know after that year and returning and. Uh, um, I, uh, I, um, that's when I first came to Tucson, actually, and I ended up in Tucson, um, and not for any other reason, but for the proximity of, of, of the border, really, mm. and, and, and actually, a, a really, I loved Tucson quite a bit, so mm. coming to Tucson, um, but, but for the proximity of the border, so I immediately got involved in different organizations that were doing, um, border work. And I actually started doing some writing on the border at that point. There was this, I don't know if you remember, there was this little, um, not little, the little news bulletin that came out from activist organizations in Tucson in the early 2000s, late 1990s, that was called La Demanda. I think it was before I got back to Tucson myself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty cool. So yeah. you started to contribute to that? I contributed a little bit. It was just a small bulletin, so mm. I'd write little small articles and I helped them with some translations and the stuff like that cool. um, and uh, yeah and then just by you know virtue of um, you know that sort of work I eventually got a job with Borderlinks and right. then started doing a lot of cross-border 
at that time it was a binational organization, so we would uh, be like crossing the border, constant, just really constantly four times a week, mm. you know, from about 2001 to 2004, which is really an interesting time to, because of post nine, I got hired in Border Links in May of 2001. Oh wow! And then of course nine September 11th yeah. hit hit like three months later, and and of course that was one of the big a big you know trans that caused a lot of upheaval and uh and how the border was being patrolled and policed and how um the kind of resources they were getting and the kind of and that's when their missions shifted to like having a counterterrorism priority mission and that sort of thing and all, all new sorts of funds just started flowing into the border patrol and or the mm. sea and then eventually customs and border protection it's like so, the beginning of the militarization yeah right yeah it's like seeing it, seeing it like have a militarization that probably had started before, and but the blueprint was there. But then all of a sudden, it was just like the physical stuff, the, the physical the, stuff, the, and the tank kind of cars, yeah, all that kind of stuff exactly. that they were getting money, influx of money from. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's interesting that you got to see that change too. You know, um, what were you hearing from the community that you had? established on the other side of the border when you were living in Mexico were you hearing from folks that what's going on over there or what's I mean were people on the on the other side aware of of uh, this what was taking place along our border yeah to uh, to varying on the person and varying mm-hmm. on but yeah people um you heard about I heard a lot about people having difficult border crossings mm. and that was at a time right when when um you know the the um people the body started to be recovered in the desert oh, yeah and more people the kind of blockading of the urban areas through the different operations and from the mid-1990s and they, they were that showing change in california yeah. from the, during the clinton administration yeah that led to people having to go further east exactly and, and go into desolate areas of go, the desert mm-hmm. yeah. and so yeah so you had you know lots of stories of people going through the desert like not even being able to cross through the traditional places and the more the safer places mm. and, and um and just like how hard it was and then even if you crossed you know even if you got past that of course then there's this other the constant you're you're stigmatized as, you know, whatever, quote unquote, illegal, right? Mm-hmm. And and treated as such. So it, so you, you carry that around, like you carry that around and those sorts of experiences. And so yeah, so people, you know, talked quite a bit about um, um, those experiences and by people, I mean like people like my na- next door neighbor, or my friends, you know, like people that became really good friends of mine too. Mm-hmm. And I lived in San Luis Potosí at the time. Mm-hmm. And then eventually I went back. I went I went back and I did um, other sort of, you know, I lived in, uh, you know, I've been in various places. I was in Chiapas mm-hmm. and I saw, so I was, I've been to like the communities that have, like the Zapatista communities mm-hmm. that have um, seen like the military incursions all around or kind of stranglehold by the military, especially in that period. Yeah. Um, I lived in Oaxaca for a bit as well. And I, and actually between, Tucson and and uh, um, I first I've been in I was in Tucson from about like the late 1990s to about 2005 but then I moved to uh, Oaxaca and I lived there for four years wow and then came back after that that's pretty great great experience yeah, too. yeah. the the um, I mean I get I, I, I imagine for you uh, in terms of as a journalist that all of this body of experience of of living in Mexico, of like the work with border links and seeing these changes meant to you like there's stories here that people are not telling and they need to be told. There's a bigger picture here that uh, more that needs to be told and that's mo- most likely your, I know I'm putting words in your mouth and I mean to be doing that, <laughs> that's okay. but that's most likely those things that probably drew you to yeah. like, I gotta get this on paper. I've gotta start, start writing about this. Yeah, absolutely. What um, back then? I mean, what were your the first stories that you re- recall that you think were that were important to you to make sure were were told? Yeah, so I really, really started um, regularly doing journalism, and I was doing a lot of 
doing some reporting and writing before that, but it was really in around 2007, 2008, mm-hmm. where I started doing a column for NACLA. NACLA is the North American Congress of Latin America. No, those guys, yeah. yeah. Michael, uh, I can't think of his last name. Michael Fox? Yes. Yeah, yeah I went yeah. to a, a School of Authentic Journalism uh, workshop with yeah. him in New York City. Mm-hmm. It was, he's a really cool guy. NACLA yeah, he's is a great, great publication. Yeah. So I started with them, and I started... I was when I was still living in Mexico, actually. So I would, they wanted me to do more. At the time, it was right after the Calderon administration took power, mm. and there was a like kind of surge of drug war activity going on mm. and increased militarization in, in Mexico. So I started writing on those those issues first from a Oaxaca from a Oaxaca perspective, mm. where I was where I was based, and then um, it was. Somehow, some way, well, probably by, well, I actually lived in New York City for a little bit, but while, amazingly, while I was in New York City, my my um, focus shifted to the border. Mm-hmm. And um, But it, when I lived in New York City, I was I was constantly traveling back and forth to Tucson, and um, eventually I came back to Tucson, of course. But, uh, but that's like so... Like everyone, right? Yeah, like everyone. <laughs> <laughs> we can't help it. <laughs> it's yeah. a place. Yeah. The, um, and I'm sorry I interrupted you because you were... Uh, we're talking about uh, about those stories in the early writing, and so you came back to Tucson, and I think you were doing some writing for Mother Jones too, and yeah, other pub, pubs like that. Yeah, I've got yes. So it, then it started expanding past mm-hmm. Nakla and started getting published in a bunch of other places yeah. as well. Um, Tell me, uh, mind me the name of your first book and the theme the themes of, of that book. The first book was called Border Patrol Nation, mm-hmm. and dis- the subtitles "Dispatches from the Front Lines of Border um, Homeland Security." Right. And um, the the book is really looking at the post nine eleven era of a border expansion. So the Border Patrol being a symbol of the broader apparatus, and looking and trying to look into like the less obvious but yet super powerful manifestations of that, such as what you, like you mentioned my first. That first piece I did with you over at mm. Tucson Weekly mm. was um, the going to the Border Security Expo. Mm. So trying that was one of the themes I looked at in Border Patrol Nation was this privatization, all these private companies that are looking for contracts, um, the kind how the budgets were go, going up, and that there's more room for for companies to bank in on on um, you on know, this tragedy on this tragedy, yeah. And um, so that's one, and you know I, I looked at all kinds of different themes like children's programs for children. Yeah, I remember yeah. that one. I think yeah. we ran one of those that was about like kind of like a not a Boy Scout group, but explorer group. Exactly. Or uh, and it was in border communities, which yeah, that yeah, was, all I remember the, that one. Exactly. So border communities all have explorer programs. Mm. All of them with a border patrol where so children go out and learn about go to the checkpoints and learn how to interrogate people going through the checkpoints and and learn about the different you know surveillance um, technologies they use and mm. and get to like you learn the mission of the border patrol and um, mm. and so yeah so so that was another kind of angle you know so just trying to look at different angles of what this meant and how this was a big deal almost through the idea of a border industrial complex mm-hmm. you know yeah, the idea for sure. of, yeah for sure mm-hmm. i mean not just an idea of that it is functioning right functioning totally exactly. totally look, functioning looking at the eisenhower quote when he um when 1961, the Dwight D. Eisenhower farewell speech when he was president, and he warned against the military-industrial mm-hmm. complex, and he said, I have to paraphrase, but he said, like, you're, it's gonna have, it's not only the effects of like, you know, what you see with the military going into war, but it's also it affects every state house, every, um, you know, showing the the how vast it is, like everything is affected by it, and then he ends the quote like including your spirituals, you know, right. You, so trying to look at all like how it just come just anchors itself into the soul of 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 I guess the the country our humanity yeah our humanity yeah, yeah. no I've always liked that quote too or mm-hmm. you know that speech the whole speech is pretty amazing but it's one that I know a lot of folks have turned to just point out and say hey you know uh, what's going on here or, yeah here it comes. Um, what I thought, my observations during that time after you published that book, too, is that 
you know, it did what we always see with our friends who publish their first books, right, as they go off into the world to market the book and meet people, sell the book, and, and go to... and. You kind of did this. Uh, you did this great train trip across into the East Coast, right? Yeah. And I, I wondered sometimes. I never got a chance to talk to you about this, but I always wondered, like, you're bringing this our border story to places that where people didn't really understand this border story, our our story, and they um, where we find you, know, especially like, in, man, others others of the country that are so far removed from what's going on here, where. People have so much misinformation and, yeah. uh, and a different, complete picture of Mexico and the border and, and us, you know. Did you find yourself, like, surprising a lot of folks with this book or in these different conversations? Yes, more than I thought, too. Really? I thought, like, you know, I I would go into places like M- Manhattan, right, and yeah. do a – I did a talk at a place that was – can't remember what it was, but it was very much a lot of activists that that attended. It was it was like an, an activist center of some mm-hmm. sort, and um and I expected people to be more knowledgeable about the border, and it was strikingly striking that how how no, how there was almost no knowledge, you know, in, wow. in, in that particular, and that was just I, I say that as an example because you know it was people that pride themselves on being uninformed on what's going on, and it's and that information about what's it's not, not I don't I don't say that to pick on them. I'm just saying mm-hmm. to pick to say that the information about what's happening on the border is is scarce. And even even now we're having like a situation where border, the border seems to be being is covered it's more than ever and it's a front page news and a lot. But still like the way that it's being covered is like the for, there's a forest and the trees mm-hmm. and then there's one tree and then the one tree is like every single detail about that one tree or maybe a couple trees but the whole forest of it seems to be neglected you know right yeah. right the bigger picture yeah the bigger really picture happening. um let's touch on your second book what was the what was the title of your second book the second book storming the wall climate change um, migration and homeland security so in that book that's the book that really gives us or and allowed you to explore that bigger picture that we're talking about where we see the stories that do get reported where, oh my gosh, we have thousands of folks who are coming up from Guatemala or Honduras and, um, and, and you know, who are these folks? It's a, a horde, yeah. you know, whatever. Horde. Gonna, <laughs> I don't know, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but um, in, in writing this book, too, I mean, same thing where, where you had convos with people about what the real story is of what's going on in Central America? Yeah. Um, yeah. I was in the book I I, I go to a number of places. Mm-hmm. Um, I also go to the Philippines and um That's right, I remember when you and uh, I went to Paris for the two thousand for the climate summit. Um, right. and uh, that's where I wrote that. I wrote a mm-hmm. Tucson Weekly piece which we can discuss later. Um, and um, and Central America of mm-hmm. course. And yeah, I mean let's even think of it like now, like the book was published in 2017, but now we're talking a lot about the caravans and the different caravans that have been coming up. And um, one of the things that happened in Central America was this summer was the, another, just yet another drought hit really hard in what's called the dry corridor. Mm. Uh, and that now it's, it's the dry corridor, actually the terminology dry corridor didn't exist 15 years ago. Oh, so it's a new, it's a, I mean, there was an arid, kind of more arid kind of corridor area, but now it's now it's established as a dry corridor mm-hmm. and extends from southern Mexico and hits the three northern triangle countries, Guatemala, El Salvador, and um, Hondur- Honduras the most, but it still extends down to Nicaragua, Nicaragua and as far as Panama. Wow. Um, and this area has been getting more, more frequent and more intense droughts now really that's really been showing for the last 10 years and this past summer um there was two million people affected two million people most 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 subsistence farmers Mm -hmm. who rely on their harvests um so when the drought and the crops wilt then um no eye right and so so people Head north. I actually, if you mind, if you don't mind, I'll tell a quick story. You bet. Um, if uh, just this summer, again this summer, um, I met a man in Sasabe, Mexico, 
who had um, who had actually crossed the border and and he had been walking for about twenty hours and he suffered what so many people crossing had suffered like he had so many blisters on his feet and he injured his shins as he was going mm. through the mountain range mm. I think it was the Baba Kivari mountain range down in that that separates the Tana Atun reservation with the with the um, eastern Arizona with uh, the east uh, east the Arizona the rest of Arizona right so um so I, I'm surmising I'm not sure but he but he talked about this long journey and he actually turned back and it was kind of a miracle. It was, it was a miracle that he made it back um, to Sasabe. But while we're talking, it turns out he was from the dry court. He said it, he said there, it hadn't rained for 40 days and 40 nights. That he put it exactly like that, 40 days and 40 nights. So the crops were wilting and he had, his family had some cattle and the cattle were just becoming, they're starving. They were, mm-hmm. they were becoming bone skinny and um. And so he was trying to unite with his. He had already, he had two brothers who were in Dallas, Texas. So he was attempting to unite with them. But that was the first thing he said. He said it was uh, the drought that drove him off his land. And um, that's. I mean, I've heard that. Like, of course, during Storming the Wall, I've heard that from other people too. But this is just to bring up a more recent story. Mm-hmm. And um, which just. I mean, it's just to underscore like that. Um, the drought. Um, the droughts in Central America, which are connected with climate change. Um, so I, in Storming the Wall, I interviewed climate scientists and climate scientists who are doing climate modeling in um, in Central America. Mm-hmm. One of them, Chris Castro, who's here at the University of Arizona, he said that Central America was, quote unquote, ground zero for climate change mm-hmm. in the Americas. And um, and uh, these ideas, these droughts are getting just more extensive. They're impacting more people. They're becoming more frequent. And then on top of that, you have Central America begin this smith, so so big bodies of water on either side, right. and so hurricanes are constantly spinning off, and and or just bad weather in general, and so there's either a lot of precipitation or, or no precipitation, a lot of either tons of flooding or complete bare bone drought, right? And so there's it's becoming one of those places in that is. I think Guatemala and Honduras have, have been in the top 10 countries most affected by climate change, mm-hmm. according to the climate index um, the, for the last several years. So it's like, this is like definitely the convo that's not happening in the greater, you know, the greater conversation about migration. I mean, it is obviously with people like you and others that, uh, but, but for, um, you know, I, I guess middle America, whatever you want, however you want to term that, that, um, uh, because I think ten, the conversation tends to be about these, um, about only focusing on violence. You know that folks are fleeing violence, folks are fleeing uh, our policies, which remains true, but um, but not really understanding that uh, what's actually happening climate-wise in Central America is like a big part of the picture that we don't really always we don't hear enough of. You know. Yeah. And that that's frustrating. I mean, I'm frustrated by that. I. Um, what were um, when you uh, when you did the book? Did you feel like you were uh, capturing a story that that um, wasn't being told that you were hoping was going to you know uh, do uh, paint this greater picture, but also uh, uh, help us understand climate change a little bit more than 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 we are willing to now? I guess. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, like for example, central yeah, it's very rarely um, uh, added into the mix. Uh, obviously, migration comes from there's multiple factors, and one of them, one really interesting factor is that people get displaced in rural areas and like Honduras, and then end up going to San Pedro Sula, which is one of the, the bigger cities, bigger cities, which has right. become infamous for its homicides for example mm. so so you have the first the climate event mm. and then you have the economic model right mm. the, the like like the NAFTA effect on Mexico the CAFTA effects been on small farmers in, in Central America CAFTA being the Central American Free Trade Agreement right. and how that pits has pit like farm small farmers against large grain movers that you know often from the United States which they, there's no possible way they can compete with and then um, and then you have that and then you have you know these increasingly eco- ecological situations and then 
and then you have a lot of people going into cities where where one of the under the again the kind of CAFTA or NAFTA model, you put in factories and in, in in the bigger cities, and then people go and supposedly according to this model, the people go and work in the factories. The factories don't pay anything, right? Right. And in Central America, for the factories have there were supposed to be more factory you know for more i should say sweatshops because that's more like the correct term but there's supposed to be more of them to absorb people coming from the from the countryside right. and and that hasn't panned out exactly how it how they had it intended and so you have these like you're creating like a place these cities with like volatile situations and climate and other economic and then you have the you know and oftentimes you talk about the violence like you said the violence is discussed but it's not unpacked mm-hmm. into the into the like and if you really unpacked it then you can start oh there's this oh there's that and with climate change you think oh when you think about greenhouse gas emissions since since 1900 the United States has emitted what's not something like 628 times more mm. than the three Northern Triangle countries of combined. Course, right. Of course, right. right? Yeah. So the responsibility that uh, there's, there's larger a, countries like us, exactly. um, especially here in this hemisphere, right? You know. Yeah. Um, here's the th- thing, though. It's like, uh, do we just not unpack this? Because if we did, we'd have to start looking at our own backyards too and wondering when we're, when are we next. You know, I mean, yeah. we are, you know, winter, at least these are these crazy things I think about when I'm in the grocery <laughs> store and looking at people going, yeah, are we thinking about this? Are you thinking about climate? You know, like, I just, I'd like to, yeah, I'll become that crazy lady at the grocery store, you know. Maybe that crazy lady is what we need. <laughs> <laughs> I'll call you from jail to be bailed out. <laughs> um, but no, I am thinking about it like that a lot, um, you know, just to be honest and, uh and, uh, you know, uh, it, it's, it, there are times, you know, I think about different, like, you know, my dad, uh, who was a homeless uh, rights advocate in, in Chicago, used to always talk about how real change is only going to happen, like, in your, three, you know, around you, like, the immediate community around you, your backyard, your neighborhood, you know, your street. And, um, and I got that from the kind of work he did and why he ended up feeling that way. And this whole thing, it just seems like so global and so out of our hands yeah. and with a bunch of people that don't really, you know, don't really care. Um, at least it definitely feels like that. And, and um, how do you, where do you, where does uh, your mind wander to when, when we think about, about this issue? And um, I know there, we did that one special issue at the Weekly um, and I asked you to contribute. It was letters uh, yeah. to a feature right letters to the future about climate um but yeah i'm kind of curious like where where does your mind wander to in this when we start to think about these our place here in all of this yeah it's it's so seems that yeah i i see your your grocery store metaphor i see it see it like also like like every every day when you think about like for example the ipc the inner Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change mm. um, put out that report, and mind you, there's this is a consensus of the probably super conservative scientists, mm-hmm. but, but the ten they, year, yeah, they're saying twelve years, yeah. twelve years to um, to uh, um, reduce greenhouse gas emissions by in half, and then what till two thousand fifty or two thousand forty, one of those years. Yeah, I think. Um, so. 40, I, 40. I think, but yeah, we'll have to check that. But yeah. um, but to then reduce it almost to nil, right? And that's what is that? And and then you go out the door, and to go to the grocery store, and you're in my car. I go in my car, mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh, here I am, and nobody, you know, we're all just sleepwalking through it, and you know, going to the, you know, and are we thinking about this because, um, it seems like seems like we have to i mean uh, we're not talking like these are like really conservative scientists that are saying that in order to keep the temperature rise to a certain degree to a certain to a certain level and now pacific islanders and and a lot of people are saying below 1.5 degrees celsius we're almost at one we're already past one yeah so keep it another 0.5 degrees we have to like really start acting now and and then two degrees is supposedly that the all bets are off temperature Mm -hmm. right so yeah once we're that it's like you know we're just gonna ride through this 
Right. Yeah, yeah, like one of the things about it is like you don't know what's going to happen. There's so many X factors. Mm -hmm. Things scramble up and mm -hmm. they call for extreme weather or extreme droughts. And mm -hmm. like southern Arizona is really prone to, it's going to be really prone to um, heating up more and then the extreme drought situations. And and so like, yeah, you're like go, getting, you know, thinking about these things and and then thinking about your children and thinking about your grandchildren and mm -hmm. grandchildren's grandchildren and, and what kind of earth are, are mm -hmm. I mean, we're already seeing it in our lifetime, but what are they going to see in their li lifetimes? You know, it seems almost uh, imperative to to do something. And, and as you say, it's it, it's always, it's so often it is presented, it is a global issue, right? It's a global issue. It seems overwhelming and it seems like it's set into motion right but there are like lots of things that that people are doing um uh local you know in local ways and one of the things that i i, th I think of is um some of the ecological um uh restoration projects that happen there's one in particular mm -hmm. the cuenca los ojos uh, project over by agua prieta mm -hmm. where they're doing binational work mm -hmm. so they have they're setting up like Gabions, which are like steel cages filled with rocks that slow down the water so that the soil absorbs the water mm. right on the border. So you can see the gabions and you can see like the border, the vehicle wow. barriers, and you can see the border patrol and the green mm. stripes. You can see their, well, their million dollar surveillance towers all in the same place as these gabions. Mm. And, and in that area, remarkably, and it's been in a 50, more than 15 year drought there, mm. um, the water table has risen by 30 feet. Because they've been doing this since the late 1990s, but for for them to be like able to restore the landscape almost somewhat in a very small scale way so far, but reverse a drought in at least one little kind of region, and and it was affecting an ejido right or a community right um, to the south of there where they were seeing water appear in places they hadn't seen they hadn't seen it in so long and the and the arroyo or the creek started running a little bit more mm -hmm. and it was it was like whoa you know like wow there are like really and, and basically this comes from piling up rocks mm -hmm. slowing down the monsoon rains or the faster the faster the rains that were eroding the washes and then having them absorb the water and then the desert willows or trees started growing back the animals are coming back mm -hmm. the the water did ignore the international boundary line and went up on the united states side as well mm -hmm. and so like why why you know that in that particular place was like why are we why is like 2018 budget for border and immigration enforcement was 20 billion dollars and the real, the real honest to God security issue that we have coming for us is like this climate change. Right. Um, yeah. And it just seems like there's better options and we could, we could actually be doing them. Right. I guess I also think about like, um, you know, uh, um, we have the, we have, you're right. We do have lots of really great folks in our community who are involved in, in different projects and ecological projects, community projects. Um, social justice projects that still have yeah. an impact you know, mm -hmm. I also you know on these issues but um, it's a uh, it's uh, uh, one of those things where I guess you know I, I, I wonder about this idea someone asked said this to me the other day I was like uh, shouldn't we have um, a regional climate uh, plan of some sort like shouldn't we like be digging into that right now like shouldn't be you know the counties southern arizona city does the city have a climate plan um but and then i think after you just said all that stuff i'm thinking like well what does that mean you know like what what would that what would that do what would we get from that what would it be its purpose would it be uh, a bunch of city ordinances and codes that would say we can only drive on these days <laughs> um if you live so far from your work, please ride your bicycle. Uh, um, you know what I mean? Or like yeah. all the grocery stores, we would definitely win a lawsuit with the state government in which we'd finally get plastic bags out of uh, our stores and everyone would do zero packaging or I don't know, you know what I mean? I'm just thinking like if we were to sit down and put together a plan like that, what would it really look like to justify the all the work that goes into things like that and giving people hope or giving people um, a voice, which is always good, I guess. But what is it actually going to do? 
do I sound cynical and mm. ready to... <laughs> Maybe, a little. <laughs> With a good reason. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, what I mean, I mean, one thing about like the client, the, this, this, this Christ, the crisis, I guess you can call it, um, this is a disaster, um, is that it's like forcing humanity to reimagine what we are, you know, mm-hmm. like pro- the civil, like you see a lot of worries about oh, civilizations in peril. And mm-hmm. it's like, well, maybe the civilization maybe as we have it, right? <laughs> like maybe, but does that mean like everything's destroyed or does that mean we reimagine what it could be and, mm-hmm. and, and think about how things can be done differently? Because it seems like we're at a point, if the forecasts are true, um, that it's either going to we start to reimagine it now, or we wait for the the shocks mm-hmm. to nail us, and then we have to we're forced to do it, right? Yeah, that ten or that twelve year thing. I think about like, well, how many elections do we have in that time period? Yeah, good good point. So to me, it's like let's just say it's five years, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and but then what you just said it made me realize that you know yeah, what do I what would I in thinking all of that and putting my cynic unpack putting that person in time <laughs> out right now, I would say that like really getting to know my community and uh, my neighbors and the people like really investing in the people I care about the most and uh, but more than anything probably really forging community and um, you know uh, I know I definitely don't do enough of that now but in what you're saying is that kind of maybe that's really where we should be putting our effort is to um, invest in the people around us that's like it reminds me of um the book by Rebecca Solnit, The oh, yeah. uh, Paradise Built in Hell, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which uh, I, look, I looked at a lot and I actually look at it it's a lot in Storming the Wall, but it's um, that book where, you know, it looks at disaster situations over the last century or about over 100 years, mm. starting with a big earthquake in San Francisco and mm. what, nine, starting in San Francisco in 1906, I think, that, and then ending in New Orleans and the Katrina. Mm. And, um, and just finding like that in disaster situations, like the state is often like goes into panic mode and thinks they have to send in the troops and send in the police and restrain, keep order. But what what disaster sociologists have shown report um, hundreds of reports show this that people actually start they cooperate more. They their tend the tendency is to cooperate with your with your neighbors and you. You the the idea of reaffirming your place in your community and being being in within your community is a super port, important mm. part of it, and this idea of being able to like to like you know work together to reconstruct or however mm-hmm. whatever the situation calls for, and um and that and that that also like al- altruism is what they found too in those situations like for people that you don't even know like you you doing something heroic or risking your own life to for somebody that you don't even know mm-hmm. to has they're much higher in in these sort of situations and it's like we're going into a permanent situation almost like that mm-hmm. and it's and maybe that's one like the, i'm just reaffirming what you're just saying you know this idea of of our real security is like in our in our relationships with our community and how we can come together and like collectively take care of each other yeah collectively take care of each other collectively grow food collectively harvest water collectively watch out for each other collectively make decisions around you know in our in our smaller you know community settings um it just seems like that's the way to go and oddly it just it seems like almost like we kind of know it like on the (laughs) subconscious level yeah because you see like people I mean, you know, we've labeled folks as whatever, millennials, hipsters, or whatever you want to say to people, but there just is this kind of thing where folks are getting more into thinking collectively um, more anyway, you know, um, that, uh, that that is the way to go in terms of uh, building community, but living and, um, and doing a lot of things yourself, learning how to do a lot of these things, figure, people who grew up urban, you know, urban life and figuring stuff out, you know, about vegetables or whatever, you know, yeah. I'm just <laughs> rambling there. But it just seems like that. I don't know, just folks I talk to. I just talked to a couple of people that uh, I know who are doing these zero waste projects, you know, um, 
where they just uh, committed to not buying uh, anything with packaging, mm. anything with stickers, anything with tags. Um, and uh, man, I'm like, oh my goodness. Yeah, I never thought <laughs> yeah. about that. Yeah, I can't get this apple because it has the stickers on it. Yeah, but, I hate know, those stickers. I hate them too. <laughs> um, so there's that, you know, their way of doing that. And then in doing that, they're, they are definitely forming communities around them uh, based on this project. And yeah, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, you know, I used to think about like, uh, you know, growing up and being told like that, that our, our way of, you know, our fourth are looking ahead in generations, you know, that the model of seven generations, you know, yeah. that we, um, we should always be thinking of that, not just this next generation, not just our kids, but, you know, seven generations from now, and where are we going to be? What do we want? What do we want things to look like? And, um, yeah, I'm trying to hold on mm-hmm. to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's an Iroquois, right? Yeah. Uh, seven generations. Uh, derive wisdom from seven generations to your past and then right. project do de- all development plans go into seven, seven generations. generations yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah de- I mean wow can you imagine if we actually put that in uh, all government entities and <laughs> hey planning department we're gonna like start asking you to uh, start thinking about uh, these things in seven generations I wonder like since industrial revolution are we seven more than seven generations since then are we like the seven generations oh. Oh, one of the industrial I'm just curious yeah. it made me think of wonder wow that's interesting mm-hmm. but from the perspective back then of where we are now they would yeah like, if they wow. had like industrial revolution had implemented a seven generations right plan but don't you think their perspective back then they would be like pretty happy where, where we are Maybe. now yeah. They'd be like, oh, you guys have regular meal. Most most of the population eats regularly, or there's, you know, uh, children don't work in factories anymore. I mean, I don't, we're kind of getting off. Of yeah, that. maybe. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's interesting. That's true. That is seven generations from yeah, this point. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, or five, maybe five generations. Yeah. Um, well, you know. Uh, what do you, I mean? What do you What do you think of like in your family? What do you What do you guys think of? What do you do? Do you think to to uh, hold on to not just hope, but you know, what, you know, what do you Where do you want to go? What do you want to do as we're as we're navigating this kind of new new world? I imagine you might be working on another book, possibly, right? Yeah, yeah. I am. Um. But like the the question, yeah. Um, actually, the what the question you're posing though, that's one I've been really yeah. trying. I've cont- I've been contemplating that, and I'm not sure. You know, I mm-hmm. feel like there's something else that has to needs to be done. Um, and I'm not sure what that is. And I and I think that precisely due to thinking about climate change and thinking about climate justice and the sense like where social justice and climate change. And, yeah, and we like, know that the most vulnerable of our communities are the ones that are gonna be most impacted, most, right? yeah. And I think of that as my children, I have a newborn and a, a three-year-old, he turns three tomorrow. <laughs> and I think of their future, you mm-hmm. know? And, and I think, you know, like through them, I think of everyone else's children and, and, uh, and it's just like, it seems like, and then what we were talking about earlier, you know, you just walk out or you turn on the television and there's car commercials coming at you left and right. Mm. You know, it's like, doesn't it's seem. Like we're just living like it's, everything's going to be fine. Exactly. You know? And it seems, it, it's like what, it seems like something has to be taken up a level and including personally, right? Mm. And I'm not sure exactly. I mean, obviously, I'll keep writing about it, and maybe that's fine, and that's great. But um, but I I feel like there's something else. Like I've thought, like what, you know, when I was doing writing Storm in the Wall, I just met so many incredible people that yeah. were doing all kinds of things, and some of them were like Yep Sanyo was from the Philippines, and mm-hmm. he was he's one of their he's probably one of their he was a climate negotiator for the Philippines mm-hmm. for the Philippines federal for the federal government and. Um, Hurricane Haiyan or Typhoon Haiyan hit in 2013 when there was the Warsaw um, summit, and he was there. It happened two days before that. And Haiyan at the time was the 
the most powerful storm to hit landfall. His brother was in Taklovan, which is the city where it, where it hit, and it just just destruction, right? I went to Taklovan as part of my research, and it was just completely destroyed. And um, he he did this um speech at the at the summit and i would recommend anyone to go like you, you can it's on youtube just mm. look up yep sanyo and and he does this this speech at the warsaw um summit where he goes off script which is very rare in u.n summits yeah and he talks really just compellingly about the, what this climate change thing is and then he goes into haiyan and how it just hit his own country and his brother he could like his brother he wasn't sure if his brother was safe at the time and um and he's just like he decided on the on the spot that it wasn't good enough that he was just there that he was gonna he had to, like I'm I when I interviewed him after the fact he told me that they even the night before they had bought groceries for two weeks like because that's how long the summit was gonna be two weeks right and he he bought groceries for two weeks and and then he declared right there on the floor that he was gonna he was gonna throw his groceries away. he didn't say he was gonna throw his groceries he said he was gonna fast for the next for the next two weeks and. And um, and then he he ended with and and people looked like they were they were like woke up like he got a standing ovation. Wow. Um. Um. And uh. And I mean, and then from then on, he fasted for the first of the month. Um. Every month, I still think he he does it. And then wow. this whole like movement about fasting for climate justice, and then a whole the whole um. Uh, island, a whole Tuvalu, I think the whole island of Tuvalu fasted on the first of the month, and and that's another just. But it was it's it's like what how how does the commitment to something? What do you have to do? Like I don't feel like I'm doing enough when I consider my my children, and I don't know what it is I can do more. But I'm thinking it, you know, and that's one of the things I'm kind of grappling with personally, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about like just getting rid of my car after the kid graduates from high school. That'll be like my one. So I live around the corner, yeah. so I'm like in a really good position where I can bike to work. And um, but you know, I mean, I guess I just think you know, it, it's own, it, obviously when we talk about these things, we're also talking about as people who come from privilege, right? Yeah. You know, and asking other folks to have these same conversations, like you know what is that you know what is uh, uh, you know or um, just the the crazy nature of the kind of world that we've created for ourselves where we have this sitting over there but then we also have we also have people who are suffering we have uh, uh, just the other spoils and nastiness of the society that we've created at the same time yeah. <laughs> um, and just and other folks out there that are just trying to uh, work three jobs, two jobs, just to pay bills or and everything else that, that our society tells us that we have to do and mm-hmm. stuff. Um, and so, yeah, how having this conversation, but then... That's why, like, like I, I think, like, the justice aspect is mm-hmm. super important because mm-hmm. why, like, there's a couple stories that, like, Hurricane Harvey that hit Houston 52 inches of rain mm-hmm. in four, four days... That story was covered and went relentlessly for like a week mm-hmm. and then it's gone away and you're mm-hmm. like oh but what about the poorest you know parts of town that were f- totally flooded who people who lost their homes mm-hmm. um and so on and so forth you know you, yeah. and and that story didn't end at that point it began the horror began for so many people and what did they have to do there hasn't been like follow-up with that that story and we're talking like People like you're, you know, like people have to work two, three jobs a day, and then all of a sudden, you're the whole city is flooded, right? And then it's just like, that's it. It's like the last, like, what is that? What is the last, the, the straw? Like Katrina, you can say the same thing. Mm, mm, mm. Or, you know, like the droughts in Central America. Like, you're working, working so hard to get your, to, to produce the corn, the milpa, the corn, and the beans, mm. and the squash. And then, no rain and it doesn't come mm-hmm. and it just you're, there's your plot and there's your food for the year and it's not coming mm. so what do you, you know um, so yeah yeah that's a, a great way to deliver it um, well uh, it's uh, it's an equalizer I guess of, of sorts uh, or brings people to that to that point um, that's what I mean by you know we're, you're talking about what's happening in this dry corridor in Central America 
that's happening already. When you know, when will we see our own uh, versions of that? Because like right now, we're like in a position where it seems like we're band-aiding and getting away with yeah. it. You know, um, but you know, how long is that going to last? And um, we'll see. I'm, I'm counting on that five-year plan. We got to come <laughs> up with this five-year plan. Yeah. But there's also this green new deal or the new green deal, however you want to put it, depending on if you're a green or dumb, right? <laughs> like, no, it's our deal. It's a green deal. And there's like, it's a new one. <laughs> um, you know, depending on if, if, uh, if there's a, enough social political commitment to really fight for something like that. And That's um, really encouraging, I think. The, yeah. The, whatever way you want to agree yeah. deal or whatever way you want to. Right, right. Um, yeah, I'm very, I'm, I find myself very, where my cynicism comes is definitely like Walt Washington, right. <laughs> like, you know, like politicians, like feeling that any sort of change can really come from that. It feels like it has to come from a, it could come from pressure on them. But this, this new Green Deal is really, it's like watching this um, evolve and, and uh, or just get started, I guess that's not even evolving yet. It's yeah, just kind of like yeah. being planted. Right. But all the attention it's getting, and um, the fact that there are people supporting it, and it, and you think about again the twelve year plan, uh, the twelve year thing that we know about, and it's like, yeah, this is what we need to do. And it's, and it's, and like learning more about it as not only a climate mitigation greenhouse gas mitigation plan, but also as a plan, Econ- economic one, economic right. one where like. Um, housing is provided, daycare is provided, you know, all these things like, like, I think about it, like, really? That's, that sounds, you know, yeah, like right. pretty awesome, you right. know? But then you go, let's go back to what you just talked about. Was it 20 billion on the, on the border yeah. uh, for, border, for, for, for Homeland Security? Yeah. Well, see, right there we could pay for a few things, right? A lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> you can pay for a lot of things. <laughs> some great housing yeah. and daycare right there, but... Anyway, Todd, I appreciate you uh, letting me uh, be really depressed and talk with you about <laughs> <laughs> and be so cynical, um, which I, I'm trying not to be. But it was um, great talking with you. I'm really glad you're joining us this month. Um, and maybe when we uh, get back to other uh, topics that you know we know uh, uh, you have a lot to offer, we'll, we'll invite you back. Oh, yeah. This, my pleasure. It's great yeah. talking. And it was great to see you and uh, see that, you know, you're alive and well with the newborn and everything. Thank you. you. Know? <laughs> <laughs> I remember those days. Mm-hmm. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for listening, Arizona. If you like what you heard and you want to see our upcoming schedule, head to iTunes to subscribe and leave a review to help us reach more people. For more info on our podcast and the Stand Together Arizona Training and Advocacy Center, go to ywcatucson.org and check out our Facebook at YWCA STAT, S-T-A-T.